This week on New Mexico in Focus, we begin our look at what the Biden climate plan means for New Mexico. We need to get off of oil and gas revenue, and we need to do that now, and the way to do that is changing the tax system. Plus, the first lady of the Navajo Nation talks about missing and murdered indigenous women. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. COVID continues to circumscribe the boundaries of life in 2021. At the Roundhouse, a positive case among House Republicans riled an already rancorous environment. And vaccine shortages have reined in ambitious plans to reopen schools in some parts of the state. The line will get up both of those issues, as well as a grim outlook for irrigation season in the Rio Grande. We have a trio of great interviews this week in addition to the Biden climate plan and missing and murdered indigenous women. We'll also focus on the ethics of delivering vaccine in a state like New Mexico. We start with the line and cautious steps towards going back to school. Welcome to this New Mexico in Focus podcast edition for Friday, February 5th, 2021, the first Friday in February. And if you subscribe to the New Mexico in Focus newsletter, you'll, I'm sure, feel the same way that host Gene Grant does. He always offers some thoughts at the first of the month, and he's not alone in describing January as a full year in one month. And so I know I'm ready to turn the page into February. I hope you are too. My name is Kevin McDonald. I'm the executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. And we always appreciate you joining us in this podcast version. We hope you get something out of it, are able to take it with you on your runs, your bicycle rides, your workouts in the car. It's another way we try to bring the show to you each week. We've got a lot going on this week. Uh, You heard about some of it in that opening uh, preview for the show. We'll dive into all of it. But we're going to start out, as we usually do, with the line. And this week, joining us on the panel, regulars Tom Garrity and Sophie Martin. And also joining us is attorney and public safety analyst Ed Perea. Always great to have Ed here. He's perfect for some of the things we're going to discuss this week. In this first segment, we are looking at the continued scramble on uh, the part of schools to uh, come up with a plan for going back, at least in a hybrid fashion, some in-school, some virtual learning, after Governor Michelle Hulan Grisham paved the way for that possibility in her State of the State speech. The Department of Education has criteria in place to make that happen as early as next week. And school districts are making plans and accommodations and trying to figure out exactly how that will work. A big note on this, uh, Wednesday night, the Albuquerque Public School Board, that's the largest district in the state, their school board met and decided to basically see how things go for the next two weeks before making a final decision. But we wanted to get the line, opinion panel's thoughts on this, as well as... um, the restarting of high school athletics as well. And so right now, let's turn it over to Gene Grant and our line opinion group. There's hardly anyone who is arguing kids learn better online. And so New Mexico is anxious to get students back into the classroom. Our new president promised within 100 days 
and the governor wants to let students return as early as this coming Monday. Can it be done? And more importantly, can it be done safely? Here to parse that issue is our Line Opinion panel. We welcome back attorney and public safety analyst Ed Perea. Good to see you again, Ed. And Line regulars Tom Garrity and Sophie Martin join us this week as well. Ed, starting with you, Albuquerque Public Schools met this week, decided to kick the can down the road for another two weeks while trying to convince the state that to still allow their athletes to compete while virtual learning goes on a little longer. Here's my question. The governor has given the go-ahead to school districts, but do they have the data they need to make this decision? Gee, there's a lot of there's a lot of data out there, and, and you're hitting you're hearing both sides of the story. And depending on who you're who you're talking to, there's the group that really wants to get these schools opened up. And mm -hmm. for those schools, for those individuals, or those groups, parents and otherwise, uh, who are really supporting opening up the schools to to, to some degree, mm -hmm. I think they review the data as as positive on their behalf. Uh, some of the numbers that have that have come out is of 1,100 or so tests that have been given, uh, probably 0.04% actually came back positive. So they're saying of the number of people that tested with an APS, they're just not seeing the problem there. And also nationally, we were seeing the from the experts are saying maybe it's not that big of a issue of a problem when it comes to the spread of this, uh, this virus to reopen some of the schools to to some degree. So that's the argument on one side. Mm -hmm. The argument on the other mm -hmm. side clearly are the teachers are saying, well, hold on here. Uh, you know, when we bring students in together, even with safe safety practices, uh, we st we're still at risk. Um, you know, our, our families are at risk. We come to the campus uh, and we go home and, and we may uh, expose others to the that's virus. Right. So there's the concern of both, of both sides. I guess the, the short of it is, you know, uh, the, where you stand depends on which side of the table that you're sitting on. And so, and I think that's, that's where we're at now with, with the APS argument that's taking place. I like the way you put that. I really like the way you put that. Sophie, obviously the, the uh, when I say, I'm not trying to be cute here, vaccinations is obviously, you know, the, the word of the day here for teachers. Should all teachers be moved to the front of the line to have some comfort for parents and everybody else? You know, I think there's some important balance that needs to be struck there uh, and I, and I, it makes me think of actually there's a there's an interesting piece in the New Mexican about what Santa Fe Prep, which admittedly ha probably has more resources than our public schools, what Santa Fe Prep has done, and and they've been able to um, put in place a system that seems pretty rational. Um, but part of what's going on there is that their teachers have been vaccinated. They were able to get their teachers vaccinated in advance of reopening, and that I think I think makes a huge difference. There is something I do I do want to point out though that um, you know, Education Weekly has had a series running just earlier this week, um, I was gonna say earlier this month, but it's still the beginning of the month. Um, and one of the things that's come out is that not every child does poorly with remote learning, that, that a number of children actually do better um, and have said, you know, my grades are improving, my focus has improved, I'm not wasting time. Uh, in the way that I might have at school. That seems like a very motivated child. I might have been good at that too. Mm -hmm. Certainly that's not true for everyone. Um, but, you know, one of the things I have to give New Mexico credit for is that unlike what I hear of some other states, it wasn't governor, you know, executive mandating, you will open. Right. It is, all right, schools, you have an opportunity, put your plans together. Mm -hmm. And some school systems in New Mexico, I think, is it... Uh, Las Vegas, I think, is saying, yeah, not not for the rest of the school year. Let's just put it out there. We're not going to open now. 
Um, different schools are looking at different plans. And it's not just sort of wave a wand and we're open. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that has to happen before a particular district can open. Going back to vaccines, it seems to me that obviously that would make a big difference in terms of the the comfort level of the and the safety of the of the of the educators right and not just the educators but the bus drivers mm -hmm. the janitors that you know everyone who works in that system i think we we forget sometimes and i think it's important to remind ourselves we are talking about teachers but they are also talking about everyone else who goes into work to make uh, the schools happen. Good points there. Hey, Tom, interestingly, when I read uh, this journal article, uh, some of the criteria, counties that are red, like APS uh, just mentioned, 25% of in-person staff will have to be tested weekly. Schools in yellow and green counties, which currently is just Harding and Union County right now, 12.5 of its staff is going to be, have to be tested each week. But the problem is they're having trouble getting to 10% on the testing at this point. Can we really ramp up where we need to be to be ready to go with this in a couple of weeks? Well, I, I think in some areas you can, but in, mm -hmm. in large part, you know, what we saw, I think, with the governor's uh, declaration in the state of the state was that she opened up the bridge to nowhere. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as far as saying, okay, great, let's go ahead and open up schools and really kind of shifted the responsibility to the schools who are going, oh, hey, how are we going to hit testing? How does red, yellow, green kind of impact us? Right. Um, and by the way, where do we find uh, 1,200 uh, school bus drivers <laughs> as, as far mm -hmm. as in the Albuquerque public schools? So I think that there are a lot of uh, items that school districts were surprised with because they thought they were going to have additional time uh, with respect to you know getting ramped up and uh, you know back up 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 and running very you know they had some time but that that runway was basically taken away with that February eighth. Uh, you know, opportunity. It wasn't a mandate. It was just an opportunity for schools. And uh, what it's really going to test, though, is the ability for school districts to communicate, not just with their teachers, uh, but also with the parents in the community, because there's a, all of a sudden expectation that, you know, the normal of you know, remote learning is about to change. Right. And mm -hmm. school districts, big or small, need to be able to manage that narrative right now, uh, or they'll have the mob rule kind of take right. over and set the narrative for them. That's right. Oh boy, I tell you what, you just really hit a home run there. I, I agree 100%. Hey, Sophie, we are top three in the country for testing right now. Yay, New Mexico. Uh, it, does that make a difference? I mean, we're, we're doing okay compared to most. Listen, we're doing okay on testing. We're also doing really, I think, well, uh, more than okay on testing. I think we're doing well on vaccination rates. Um, this state has been, um, you know, out front uh, in in most areas mm -hmm. since the start of the pandemic. But but being number three, being up there, doesn't necessarily mean that we have all that we need. Why is testing important? It helps to give us a sense of what percentage of the population is effective. Um, epidemiologists can extrapolate from that, from the smaller sample size to, you know, how many people might actually have it, what the spread is in the state. Mm -hmm. When we look at the educational system, testing is essential in other ways. I mean, there's, you know, there's a requirement for schools that open and that if four kids in your, is it four kids in your classroom, four kids at your school? Now I'm going to admit that I can't remember which one it is, I but, I but bet it's school. is the yeah. threshold at which mm -hmm. point everyone goes home. And if there's not testing, you don't know necessarily that you've met that threshold. Yep. Um, and that leaves everyone at that school less safe. Mm -hmm. Good point there. Hey, Ed, we've got just about a minute here. I want you to pick up on that as well. Um, uh, President Biden's pledge 
Does that make a difference or is that just, you know, Inauguration Day talk? And that pledge for what, Gene? Uh, have everyone, 100 days, have everybody back in school in the first 100 days. Well, I just, Gene, we really, again, we don't want to move too quickly, but we want to move steadily. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, again, there's still a lot of concerns out here with regard to the last question as far as where we rank on, on testing. Mm -hmm. Just look back to a month to two months ago when we were spiking, when we had a, a very serious problem. So I think the testing is important. The testing provides us some data uh, which to make some of our, uh, some of the decisions that need to be made. Uh, but we don't want to move too quickly. I know there's this. I know there's this push to it. But I'm from the camp that we we don't want to jump too far ahead. We want to move when we're when we're ready. I like a pledge. I think a pledge isn't a promise, but it sets a goal for us. Uh, I think the pledge is fine. Let's move in that direction. Let's continue to follow the data and let's see where we're at. There you go. Have to wrap it up there. This group is back in a few minutes. To talk about COVID at the Roundhouse and the long contentious road ahead for lawmakers. A very special interview now, uh, one we recorded a couple of weeks ago. You might remember we talked to Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez about the ongoing efforts for the uh, Navajo Nation to battle and curb the spread of COVID-19, uh, hit very hard by the pandemic, especially in the early going, have made great strides since then. And so we talked to him especially about the vaccine rollout, which seems to be going pretty well there on the Navajo Nation. But at that time, we also had a chance to talk to the First Lady of the Navajo Nation, that's Felifia Nez, and uh, she has had a very prominent position as First Lady in dealing with missing and murdered Indigenous women and the domestic violence that we know very well now is affecting Native populations at a much greater rate than the general population. In fact, First Lady Nez sits on the New Mexico Task Force on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, also known as MMIW. Uh, that task force was set up last year and issued its first 64-page uh, report on some of the things that we need to do to get a better handle on this, things like data collection, uh, reporting, better reporting, and, of course, increased support for families. And so we are thankful to First Lady Nez for sitting down with Antonia Gonzalez over Zoom and talking about her work here in New Mexico, also Arizona, and other places around the country as well. So here now is that interview. Joining us now is the First Lady of the Navajo Nation. Thank you so much for joining us here on New Mexico in Focus. Um, please introduce yourself. Yes, I my name is Fidelia Nez. I'm the First Lady of the Navajo Nation. That's how I relate to my Navajo relatives. All right, thank you so much. And I wanted to share or have you share a little bit about the very important um, serious work of missing and murdered indigenous people. It is a really tough topic for the Navajo Nation, um, families and indigenous people across the United States to talk about, but it's also a very important issue. Can you share some of your work you're doing on task forces, both in New Mexico and in Arizona? Well, uh, for New Mexico, I've been working with the task force, uh, was appointed um, October of last year and we just ended our uh, task force duties for the first year um, in November of 2020. So it went 2019 to 2020. And 
um, for the Navajo Nation, from the Office of the First Lady and Second Lady, a lot of our efforts have uh, been revolving around uh, just educating the public on um, MMIW and then as well as uh, human trafficking because there's a connection there definitely, but it's not one and the same. And then for the Arizona um, uh, human, uh, and the other one that we've been reaching out to is uh, the Arizona governor's uh, human trafficking and uh, yeah, human trafficking um, advisory council and then New Mexico Human Trafficking Task Force. So it's been a lot of um, efforts of uh, partnering with them to educate the public on some of these items. And the task force here in New Mexico recently released a report of the work um, and recommendations for the governor and also New Mexico state lawmakers. What is the top priority that the task force found that needs to be done to address missing and murdered indigenous people in New Mexico? It would be data collection. Um, you know, there's, uh, you're talking about um, numerous um, tribes and pueblos in New Mexico and every one of those tribes and pueblos, we have our own uh, tribal justice systems. Everybody has their own laws. And so as sovereign nations, it's really, uh, something that needs to be addressed almost internally. But then of course we want to keep support of uh, the state of New Mexico. So it would be a partnership across uh, jurisdictions and also with the federal uh, institutions as well. And how does law enforcement looking at jurisdictions play? Because there are a number of tribes in New Mexico, the Navajo Nation, Apache tribes, and the Pueblo communities, all sovereign nations, like you said, with different um, laws, language, culture, history, um, and then working not only just locally on the state and national level. So how is working with law enforcement, why is that key in addressing this issue? You know, a lot of it starts with reporting. And the second step in that is the actual uh, classifications. And so when you're looking at different databases, they don't all collect the same types of information. And the other important factor here is accessibility. Who gets access to these uh, data collection centers and how are they utilized? And um, that's really been uh, the top two findings, I think, uh, from the report itself. So when we're talking about collaborations and partnering, uh, we can't force another jurisdiction or, you know, across that, even from border towns, like for Napo Nation, we wouldn't be able to like strong our, any border town or any county or any state uh, court system or PD to uh, give us information. So it really has to be done in a collaborative effort. And that's been, I think that's always been um, the, the, the greatest barrier, maybe. And part of the task force, not only looking at these issues is a lack of resources. What kind of resources are needed um, to look, study, uh, create a database and just keep this movement of MMIW and other uh, missing persons going? In terms of database, I think uh, for the tribes ourselves, you know, it's uh, because, so for, for, for example, 
some of our tribal members, they have memberships or they're either married or have children in other tribal communities. So when you have two tribal communities who don't share the same type of the same database, it's really hard to um, even connect in those ways. So maybe it's that's where that shared um, those shared agreements to have access to each other's uh, reporting databases. That's very important. But the other one that we see firsthand, I guess, on tribal communities is just a reluctance to even report certain things to law enforcement. And then beyond that would just be, um, there's a great uh, need for education, I think, of the public on how um, the criminal justice system operates on each tribal system. And then of course, you have to look at um, how things operate off the nation. If things occur, if there's an incident that occurs off the nation, you're looking at either working with a city, a county or state um, a justice system. And then of course, when the federal justice system gets involved, that's a whole different layer of items that, so it's not, so every case is not always gonna be the same. And I think that's where there's a lot of confusion that sets in place. And it's where a lot of distrust happens, uh, but there needs to be definitely an edu uh, a great amount of education to the public on that. And what are, or what is the importance of having families involved in the process? What kind of things are you hearing from families? And we're not just talking about, um, you know, just older women, the Navajo Nation very unfortunately lost Ashlyn Mike, which was, um, you know, internationally known and the community came together to remember her. And it was such a hard time on not only the Navajo Nation, but other tribes across the country um, relating to these different types of cases. So what are you hearing from families? For families, it's just a lot of support services, wraparound services, comprehensive services. That's really what's needed um, during the time when an incident occurs. And then uh, there's also need for services for um, returning survivors. So families do need support when um, a member of their family returns home and that's usually and um, so, sometimes that's left out of the conversations, but we've definitely heard from some families who, who are struggling with that right now. And can you share some information about some of the work the Navajo Nation in particular is doing on missing and murdered indigenous people? Uh, there's a lot of um, education and prevention efforts. You see a lot more on that end. Um, in the future, we would like to see more in terms of, uh, I guess, reporting. But of course, in order for some for anybody to report anything, they need to be, uh, they need to know what it is uh, that they're looking for and how some of these things occur. And so, and I think that's something. Maybe that's the reason why we don't have many people reporting because they don't know what it is that they're really seeing and witnessing happening in their own communities. And is there any resource that people should reach out to or look to if they're in need of assistance? We'll be posting uh, resource links on our new website for the Office of the First Lady, Second Lady. Um, so that's where a lot of families will be, um, will definitely be um, making that known during the virtual event. 
will have a website and then a forthcoming app. So they'll always have access to those on there. Well, First Lady, thank you so much for joining us and talking about this very important and hard issue that many families and tribes across the country, including the Navajo Nation, are working on. Thank you. Headed right back to the line opinion panel now, and they are going to be reacting to news this week that a member of the House Republican minority tested positive for COVID-19. That was shortly after the start of this unusual virtual legislative session. And that led to a bit of a um, kerfuffle, if you will, in the roundhouse. You had Democratic Speaker of the House, Brian Egolf, criticizing Republican caucus for uh, allegedly eating together, not following the protocol, and pointing to um, this case as well as some positive cases for staff members uh, as evidence of, of bad behavior. Uh, again, it's a crazy time in the roundhouse as they try to get the work of the people done in the middle of a pandemic. Lawmakers are allowed in the Capitol, um, but as you will hear in this line discussion, there are questions about testing and the transparency of the testing and a lot of frustrations about how things are going even as they try to do their best. So here again, the line opinion panel. It's been a strange week at the Roundhouse in Santa Fe. Just before last week's episode aired, we learned a number, a member, excuse me, of House Republican Caucus tested positive for COVID-19. The group of 25 conservative lawmakers has been the most critical of both the governor's response to the pandemic and now the largely online nature of the session itself. That didn't sit well with Democratic Speaker of the House, Brian Egolf, who accused House Republicans of being reckless with regard to public health. They sued. We're still waiting for a Supreme Court opinion on the House rules, possibly next week. And here we are not even halfway through the session. <laughs> and Sophie, perhaps the most surprising thing about the sessions this week, they've been relatively civil. You know, Mr. Egolf eased up on his three in the people chamber rule and about half the Republicans showed up in person. What do you make up of this whole dust up? Is this just like, you can't tell us what to do, so we're just gonna do what's, you know, what's not right? What, what, how do you make what's going on you here? You know, some of, some of this is posturing. Some mm -hmm. of it is, is sort of virtue signaling on both sides. Right, fair um, enough. But what, neither, but what neither party really has control over, let's face it, is the pandemic itself. Mm -hmm. And just like we've seen for all of us for the last basically year, um, dealing with the pandemic, adding the pandemic on top of everything you already have to do, in this case, in a 60-day session, mm -hmm. it was just bound to add extra conflict, um, extra opportunities for chest pounding, etc. Um, I think for, frankly, you know, message to legislators, I, I think that for the general public, um, the New Mexico electorate, we want to see action. We mm -hmm. want to see work happening. And this kind of squabbling um, is is more than unfortunate. It is a distraction from the work that really needs to get done. And and I will say that work is getting done. I mean, sure. we've seen some important bills uh, filed right off the bat, a number of bills that, that um, Democrats have been trying to get um, past the governor's desk, let's put it that way, that they couldn't get past Governor Martinez, that that um, Governor Lujan Grisham has indicated she will sign. And so I think we're gonna see some real progress 
uh, on some of those bills early on. You know, we're already seeing progress, but but the big work, the state's COVID response, et cetera, um, that's, I think, going to be a big focus of what the electorate wants to see happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's got to that's got to get rolling. That's a good point there. Hey, Ed, interestingly, um, we're just under 2000 coronavirus tests conducted at the Roundhouse. And they began on-site testing on January 15th. And as the as we know now, the reporting, they've had just five positive test results or 0.4 percent. Does that make a difference to you? I mean, does that say to you that Republicans are in fact taking care? Because if they weren't, we'd have a whole lot more cases than than this. And and I'll remind folks, our average statewide is 7 percent versus the 0.4 percent we're seeing up in the roundhouse. Gene, this is a a new environment and it's a it's it's not part of the general population, but Mm -hmm. it could be the starting point. If we're not careful, if we recall back to the beginning of of this virus back in March, April, May, June. Locally, not many people knew anyone who had contracted the virus. But as time went on, more and more people knew more and more people who had the virus. So it started from somewhere. So we want to be careful and not to get too comfortable with the fact that only so many people, so many tests, only so many people, that 0.04% that you mentioned gotcha. uh, has, has come back positive. Mm-hmm. We want to take advantage of that and look at that in a positive way, but not to take it for granted and, and, and loosen up on, on, our, on the precautions that we all need to take. My concern would be that we take some comfort that the, that the positivity rate is low, and then we move in the opposite direction by not taking the necessary steps. That's gonna keep that uh, number as low as the, the initial uh, mm-hmm. results. Of- you know, if I can jump in though, Please. you know, legislators are not required to be tested. And if we're right. not if we're not testing, we're not really able to to get accurate measurements. Um, and the Republican legislators, in particular, have pushed back against the testing right. um, program. And so when we say 0.04, two things: one is this is for by and large a a white collar group that um, you know not exclusively, but but in general, legislators and their staff um, would be expected to reflect. Um, the the transmission rates that of people who are able to protect themselves stay home etc as opposed to our frontline workers who are really um, at greater risk um the, we see people of color at greater risk mm-hmm. for um underrepresented communities at greater risk for COVID infection um but but i have to point out this is not a comprehensive plan legislators can choose to opt, opt out of being tested and as we know many people are asymptomatic so I'm not sure that that figure really means that much. I appreciate that. That's, right. that's, that's why they call that contact, Jay. Go ahead, Ed. Sorry just about very that. Quick, Sophie, G, just very quickly. Yeah, and when you look at the data, the number of people that one person who tests positive can affect are just enormous, right. ex- exponential. And so you know, caution, caution, caution. Don't mm-hmm. take comfort in the low numbers at this point. And I think you guys are describing quite well where Brian Egolf is coming from. <laughs> there's, there's, no, there's no end of frustration for this man. And sometimes some of the comments he's made about this uh, sort of get at that. But Tom, let me ask you this. This is also interesting. It came out last week that um, during the first three days of the session, there was a positive case there um, and nobody knew it. And given the restrictions for who can be in the Capitol, should a positive test have been uh, announced right away? Well, you know, in in this age, transparency is really key. So, you know, I I think that the more transparency that's out there, uh, the better. Uh, So yes is the short answer to that. 
Uh, longer answer is, is that I think that uh, what we've seen at the Roundhouse has been so far a responsible approach. Now, mm -hmm. I'm not saying that the Democrats are right and the Republicans are wrong. I think the Republicans have a lot of great points that they raised before the Supreme Court. They just didn't raise them the best way possible. Uh, so, and of those points is as far as going remote, does that really provide residents in the rural part of the state who tend to be uh, more right-leaning than left, mm -hmm. uh, have true access to participate in all of the proceedings? Uh, and then the second is, is uh, as far as uh, just, you know, going back to Santa Fe, is what happened to the Santa Fe Convention Center? I thought right. they were supposed to open up the convention center to, you know, make everything a lot more accessible. Um, so, you know, I think that there is a lot of confusion out there right now. I think everybody's kind of taking that chill pill and is kind of, you know, saying, okay, great. We've all made our points. Now maybe we can focus on legislation. Uh, but my hope is, is that, you know, perhaps the, you know, uh, that there will be uh, just a little bit more consistency in the rulemaking between the House and the Senate. Because I think that having the consistent rules as far as the rules that bind the Senate are the same rules that bind the House will help to kind of calm the overall kind of sense of anxiety that tends to make the headlines. Mm -hmm. Ed, you just got a little bit under a minute here. Just a quick question about the Supreme Court you mentioned earlier. What, what's your sense of their chances? Uh, honestly, uh, you know, this idea that it's unconstitutional to not physically be in Santa Fe. Is, is that a winner? It really looks like the courts recently in a number of different cases, and I'm sure the court will follow here, uh, is that this pandemic has created a unique situation where all members of society, all walks of life, have to make those adjustments in, in the interest of, of public safety and public health. So I think if the, the, the issue is about public health and the health of those participants, uh, in the legislature, both both the legislators and staff, that the court will likely uphold any issue relating to adjustments in the interest of public safety. Mm -hmm. Got you there. Have to hold our conversation there. Vaccinations continue to be a thing here in New Mexico. Uh, start with the good news. We're getting 92% of our vaccines into the arms of New Mexicans, which is a good thing. But the supply chain, unfortunately, drying up a little bit, not drying up completely, but it's more of a trickle now of vaccines into the state compared to what we were hoping for. Uh, we talked about last week how the pit at UNM, which is set up as a mass vaccination site, was actually going to pause this week uh, until they got more vaccines in before they start up again. Not sure exactly when that will be yet, but uh, it got us to thinking a lot about what a massive undertaking a vaccine rollout like this is and how it really touches on a lot of ethical questions in terms of who are the people who should get it first? How do you make sure underrepresented populations get their place in line? We've talked about it before. We've already had cases of people jumping the line here in New Mexico to get their vaccine. Uh, everybody's doing their best to get these things out and uh, administered as quickly as possible, but there are a lot of ethical questions involved, and we wanted to dive into some of that. We were lucky enough to be joined by an Albuquerque resident. She's also teaches philosophy at Gallaudet University, but she is a bioethicist. That's Teresa Blankmeyer-Burke. And so she sat down with Megan Kamrick this week to talk about some of these challenges and things that need to be addressed for disabled people, for those underserved populations, for some of the most vulnerable people who may have a hard time 
jumping right to when those vaccines are available. We're talking about access, locations, uh, all of these things. And so here now, Megan Kamrick. Teresa, there are concerns the distribution of the COVID vaccine may not be as equitable and efficacious as bioethicists, bioethicists would have hoped. As you see it, is the vaccine being distributed ethically and equally? Are there any groups you wish had priority over others? Oh, thank you for that question. I think that the, um, the priorities that the CDC has um, put together are ethical priorities. The devil is in the details. So one question is, um, of course, we all want to reduce death and serious disease. The other one is we want society to keep functioning. But the big concern for many people is how do we reduce the burden that COVID has on populations that are already being more stressed by COVID? And so one, one thought is, how do we identify these populations? These are often people who are of lower socioeconomic status, they're poor, they may live in multi-generational housing, they may not have access to food and other things. So these communities also often don't have the healthcare infrastructure that we need. So where are the vaccine sites? How do we get this information out to these populations and are they accessible? These are big priorities for New Mexico. Let's say you had full control of who mm. got the vaccine and when, how would you make okay. the vaccination effort fairer for all? Uh, that's such a good question. Well, I think that it's, um, of course, not just up to me. And even if, it, if I were told I could make the decision myself, I would ask and include members of the populations who feel that they have been disregarded. But one thing I think is important to do is to consider um, where are these sites located, but maybe even before that, what's the infrastructure? Do we have enough of the vaccines in particular areas, especially communities that have been hit hard? Uh, vaccine locations that are easily accessible to people, not just in terms of are they on a bus line? Do people have cars so they can get there? But also, what about people with disabilities? Is there signage for deaf people who, who may not be able to speech read because people are wearing masks? Do we have um, entrances and exits with ramps rather than stairs? And this is actually a problem with one of the sites. I was just notified of this yesterday. Do we have um, information that's accessible to people before they get on site? so that they know what to expect and what to anticipate. So these are some of the things that are important to people with disabilities that haven't really been considered, not just here in New Mexico. I think New Mexico is doing a pretty good job, but nationally. And we take it, you have a copy of President Biden's national COVID response. Is there anything promising in the plan? Anything surprising? Hmm. Um, well, I'm, I'm excited about it. It does take specific note of um, people who are what we call under the social vulnerability index category. I mean, everyone can be assigned certain kinds of vulnerabilities depending on where they live, what kind of resources they have access to, and so forth. And the Biden plan has done 
um, has a particular effort to make sure that these populations that are often overlooked are not being overlooked. There's a lot of attention being given to those um, communities. And as a bioethicist, one of the things I look at are values and how are the values of the American people represented in such a document? How do these um, get manifested in the choices and the priorities and whose lives and well-being are prioritized when there's so many competing interests, whether it's economics and education and, of course, health and well-being. Do you feel like the document represents that? So it's 200 pages long plus, <laughs> and I read through it very quickly a few nights ago. Um, what I didn't see any flags, so I'm encouraged and hopeful. I will later this week be going through it with a fine tooth comb and then let, making recommendations to various people about my thoughts on this. And, and in particular, since I do a lot of work with disability communities, we'll look for how this supports and provides acknowledgement of the needs of people with disabilities. Um, let's compare what's happening in New Mexico versus other states. Is there anything we should be modeling or anything we should be avoiding? Well, actually, I think New Mexico's doing a really good job. I'm most familiar with what's happening in um, DC and Maryland and Virginia, because that is another place where I spend a lot of time and I'm familiar with that community. One thing that New Mexico has done differently than a lot of states is in the most recent vaccine um, allocation plan, which is dated January 22nd, New Mexico actually makes specific reference to verif verification of employment and of qualifying conditions. And I asked around, because I, I was told this might be a topic that would come up, and I asked colleagues around the country and got some input also from international bioethicist colleagues. And what they've said is this is very much an honor system in most locations. Now, whether that will change remains to be seen because these vaccine allocation plans are shifting as we learn more about what works and what doesn't work. But I was very pleased to see that in New Mexico, there is going to be verification of employment and mm. then also that people with qualifying conditions should be prepared to verify medically what their conditions are. And of course, this is tricky because it gets into issues of medical privacy. So we have to be careful about that. There have been reports of people line jumping the vaccination mm. process. They're sharing event codes meant for healthcare workers on the registration portal. And coupled with that, the system does rely on people to be truthful. Do you think these mm -hmm. safeguards I guess we'll find out, but you think that we have them here, but that's not necessarily mm -hmm. universal right now around the country. Not at this point. So again, I asked a number of colleagues about this in um, states in the Northeast, uh, Southeast, West Coast, and Midwest. And everything that I received said, so far it's honor system. Hmm. Now, line jumping, um, I think no matter what the context is we'll always have a few people who do that. It's part of the free writer problem, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that we have to wait and see, is this a problem that is 
a systemic issue? If so, then we really should fix it. Is it a once in a while thing? If it's a once in a while thing, are, is this the best way for us to allocate our very limited resources in public health? So hmm. it's, it's right. partly, I think, a matter of how do we distribute the resources we have in the most effective ways? And that may not be the best use of our resources at this point in time. Because verifying also takes resources and time and yeah, yeah, and it takes it away from the um, the work that our public health department of health workers and those who are in supportive contexts are doing. So the New Mexico Department of Health is aiming to vaccinate people with at least one chronic condition in this phase. Mm -hmm. That includes mm -hmm. conditions that could be hard to verify, like smoking or your BMI, your body mass index. Should we be putting people who say? smoke as one of those conditions ahead of someone who has a serious crippling neurologic disorder? Okay, so I am not a medical doctor. I'm a bioethicist, so I'm not going to be able to make judgments about which medical conditions are more risky. The CDC has done that, and ASIP, the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices, in the CDC has, has looked at these conditions. And my understanding is that this list is shifting as we get more scientific information. Again, that's a question for the scientists, but the question you just asked me is um, when you have conditions that are hard to verify, how much weight should we be giving people in terms of their self-report? Mm -hmm. And I think again, this is going to be, it's, it's tricky. I think it's a matter of balancing the resources that we have. What's the best use of our resources? Do we have the capacity to do this? And again, if we find that it's a systemic problem where somehow we're learning about many, many, many people who are doing this, then we'd have to add other safeguards. I actually don't know because I couldn't find my previous draft copy of the um, vaccination, vaccine allocation plan, but it might be um, worth exploring to see if there was verification language that was different on earlier drafts mm. of this particular plan. And I did not see anything about verification in the most recent CDC um, website about vaccines. Doesn't mean it isn't there, but I looked for it and I couldn't find it. So perhaps this will be an issue that comes up later. As they respond to imperfections in the system, yes. which happens yeah. in a lot of systemic rollouts. Well, Teresa, thank you so much yeah. for talking with us about this. Oh, thank you. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. We actually had a few extra minutes, uh, or I should say Teresa Blankmeyer-Burke had a few extra minutes to continue to talk to with us about some of these ethical uh, considerations and issues around a massive vaccination rollout. And so we were thrilled to get those few extra minutes, and uh, we wanted to bring that to you here. It's a great time to also point out that we do a lot of things during the week, and if you follow us on all our social media platforms, you'll be right there for all of it. would point you to a couple things earlier in the week on Tuesday. Our podcast, Growing Forward, which looks at the cannabis industry here in New Mexico. We're into season two, the second episode released this week. 
but you can also find it on our Facebook and YouTube pages. And host Megan Camrick, Andy Lyman talked to a couple folks who are very heavily uh, focused on the education aspect of the cannabis industry, not only the medical cannabis industry, but the possibilities of legalization of recreational cannabis. When we're talking about education, this largely has to do with medical professionals and those who work in the industry. Uh, We often talk about it internally, thinking about it this way. When you go to a dispensary for your medical cannabis right now, uh, it's almost like going to the pharmacy. Uh, And so folks need to be educated on uh, the drug and the different strains and what they do uh, to help customers out. And so one of our guests, Shannon Jaramillo, actually has set up a curriculum with Northern New Mexico College that will create a certification of sorts for industry workers. So um, we encourage you to go check that out. We also talked to some teachers on Tuesday as well about their anxieties, concerns, thoughts about uh, the inevitability of going back to school, possibly for some very soon. Uh, Fascinating discussion with some very passionate educators. We encourage you to check that out. Then on Wednesday, our Groundwater War Project, which looks at contamination of groundwater around uh, and near military installations in New Mexico. Uh, We recently did a report about a study that the State Environment Department did about where exactly some of this contamination stretches to, and we wanted to follow up with that because we got a lot of questions from viewers and readers. And so we were joined by officials from the Environment Department and the Department of Health. They took audience questions. That also hosted by Laura Paskus and is a great watch. You can find all of that on our Facebook and YouTube pages as well. And then on Friday, a really exciting one. I may even throw this up as a special episode here on the podcast. Uh, I'm sure you remember the name Amanda Gorman. She stole the show on Inauguration Day. She is a spoken word poet, and it really got us to thinking about what a moment for the poets that she created. We're already seeing it because coming up in two days for the Super Bowl, Amanda Gorman will again be performing And that is going to be a fascinating thing to behold. So we called on some friends of the show, friends of the station. That is uh, Albuquerque's original poet laureate, Hakeem Bellamy, as well as another poet laureate, Jessica Helen Lopez, who also teaches uh, poetry um, and has for a long time uh, at NACA, the Native American Charter Academy here in town, and also the state poet laureate, Levi Romero, just a fascinating conversation about the power of language and the moment that we're having right now, all thanks to Amanda Gorman. Want to know, are you going to listen in for that as part of the Super Bowl festivities? Do you want a political message there? Do you not want to hear um, something that's a little more pointed, especially considering the situation the NFL has been dealing with for years now in terms of the protest debate that started with Colin Kaepernick? that uh, President, former President Trump jumped into the middle to. It's going to be fascinating to hear exactly what her message is, but she is someone that is immediately turned into a person who, when she talks, people listen. So you can also find that on our Facebook page. Just a lot going on. Teresa, thank you for sticking around to do some extra questions for the web. The vaccine rollout in the U.S. is very slow. 
And the New Mexico Department of Health recently backed off its timeline for scheduled vaccinations and said it, that it may take several months to fully vaccinate people who qualify for this current phase, which is 1B. This no doubt will make New Mexicans impatient, maybe angry. Do you see this causing a problem in the future with the vaccine delivery system? Uh, that's, so this is a great question. And again, I am a bioethicist. I'm not a public health worker. But I think that the, um, the public trust in our Department of Health, in the, um, the, ver the different mechanisms that are used to provide vaccines, whether they be flu vaccines or vaccines for COVID or something else, gets undermined when things don't go as we hope they will go. Now, I think that everyone understands this is an unprecedented um, effort. I don't think we've ever tried to vaccinate the entire population before. Um, not in this way. I mean, maybe with flu, not, not with this urgency anyway. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if there is not just the concern about can we get this right, but the other pressures that are adding to people's stress as, as they push for, let's get this going so that we can reopen schools, so that we can have our businesses operating, bring the economy back. And I think we have an ethical imperative to do this as quickly as we can. That's a good point. Is there a possibility that a potential black market of COVID vaccines might become a reality for those who will be waiting a long time for shots? <laughs> oh, what a great question. I actually haven't thought about that. So I'm not quite sure how to respond. Okay. Um, but it did make me think of something else, which is that, um, so we have this concept in bioethics that we're talking about a lot now, which is vaccine nationalism. Mm. And that is that some countries have a lot of resources and they've managed to get vaccines and have enough vaccines or contracts for more than enough vaccines to cover their population. Mm -hmm. Canada would be one of those countries. Um, other countries are not as wealthy in resources. And so that these countries are scrambling to even get their essential workers, their healthcare workers, the people at highest risk covered by vaccines. So if we take a very far step back and kind of look at the population of the world as a whole, there may be some black market vaccine trafficking, especially in these places where you may have people in some countries where there aren't, um, there isn't access to vaccines, but these, these individuals may have a lot of wealth themselves and mm -hmm. may figure out how to do that. That's kind of my top of the head response to this question. Well, it's interesting, the idea of who is going to get vaccines globally of course, mm -hmm. is an ethical issue. But mm -hmm. from a strictly pragmatic point of view, every, this, <laughs> that, you know, viruses don't respect borders. So if right. the world isn't vaccinated, mm -hmm. we're not vaccinated, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that um, given that New Mexico is a border state, we may have some pragmatic concerns about this as well. Um, and well, then again, people can get on airplane and fly anywhere. So, well, the, so there's that. They've just detected the Brazilian variant. 
Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. not a citizen of Brazil who brought it. It's in a U.S. citizen who traveled mm-hmm. from Brazil. Mm-hmm. So that is not someone who would be prevented with any of the travel bans we have mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. yeah. Some some countries have been much stricter about travel travel and letting people in and out of the country and quarantine, quarantine. and isolation. We have not been as strict as some of those other countries. Um, the situation is bound to make someone unhappy somewhere, regardless. And how do we balance the difficulties of prioritizing one person over another? Good question. Um, I think that brings us back to values. And by that, I mean, we have to look at what are the most important things for us as a community, as a nation. I think for many people that's going to be preventing or reducing the number of deaths and serious um, sick illness in response to COVID. There's also the need to get society up and running again as it was before the pandemic. And then how do we make sure that people who have often been left behind or overlooked or in some cases, I mean, there, there are historical instances of even the US Public Health Service doing unethical things to populations of people. And I'm thinking of the um, research on syphilis in the Tuskegee experiment as, as one, one example. Yeah, yeah. And or then sterilizations. We much, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And even closer to home in um, uh, the 1920s and 30s and for some decades after that in the Navajo Nation, there were different responses to tuberculosis that did not take into account the cultural practices and the ways that would be best for that community to be supported and treated. So so it's a big puzzle, lots of pieces to it. And as we get more scientific knowledge, good bioethics is based on good science then we can move forward and start thinking about how to adjudicate those values with the new information we have coming in. It's a cliche to say never waste a good crisis. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is just another way that the pandemic has thrown into relief um, the fractures in our healthcare system, the fractures in the values that you Mm -hmm. just articulated. Do you have hope or optimism that um, coming out of this, we might articulate better ethical practices, better healthcare practices? Yeah, so so I'm I'm an optimist at heart, and um, I am cautiously hopeful that we will take what we've learned from this pandemic and carry it forward. One of the things I have seen as a bioethicist, I attend a lot of different events filled with bioethicists. I have never seen so many bioethicists talking about health inequities and race as I have pre-pandemic. So I think that's one aspect. The other thing is an increased awareness of the needs of people with disabilities. And I'd Mm -hmm. like to see that going forward as well. We're seeing many um, events, press conferences, public health um, uh, 
information releases that now have American Sign Language. They have captions. They're provided in additional um, formats so that people with disabilities have access to that information going forward. Well, again, Teresa, thank you so much for talking about this. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. All right, another big issue always for us on the show, that is climate change. You hear us talk about it a lot. We are seeing so much of the impacts of climate change in our state, and uh, especially balancing the need for moving towards renewable energy and taking steps to curb climate change, but also with the realization that the oil and gas industry is such an economic driver in our state. We're going to be talking to a lot of folks in the coming weeks, uh, a series will, if you will, of interviews with people um, that are also going to be reflecting on President Joe Biden's executive order that was recently released on climate change and how it might affect the state. And so we kicked that off this week with our land correspondent, Laura Paskus. She sat down with NMSU economist Jim Peach to talk about one part of that executive order, which included a pause on new oil and gas leases on some federal lands, as well as the need to diversify away from fossil fuels here in New Mexico, but really wanted to get his thoughts on the economic impact of President Biden's plan uh, here in New Mexico. So again, here is Laura Paskus with Jim Peach, an economist and professor emeritus at New Mexico State University. Welcome, Jim Peach. Last week, President Joe Biden signed an executive order regarding climate change, and we'll be looking at many different aspects of the different provisions in this order. But today we're talking about the pause on new oil and gas leases on some federal lands. Will this affect New Mexico's economy in the short term, in the long term? What do you think? Complicated answer, but I'll be quick about it. Uh, the portion of the executive order that uh, everybody's concerned about is Section 208, that uh, the moratorium on new leases on federal land. Uh, there was a previous order from the Secretary of the Interior, the Acting Secretary, and we can talk about that later. This particular order does not uh, address permits. It does not restrict permits. Uh, 97% of the federal land that's worth leasing has already been leased. Uh, and so this, this particular order won't have much of an effect. Uh, we can talk about the previous order from the Secretary of the Interior, uh, which put a 60-day moratorium on new permits. And that is a something, something a little bit different. I would assume that the presidential order overrides the Secretary of the Interior's order, but uh, there may be clarification on that. And so I don't think it's going to have a huge impact in the short run. In the long run, uh, you know, four or five years from now, we don't know because we don't know what else is coming down the road here. 
these are interesting times to say the least. We've got a global <laughs> pandemic, climate change, political change, economic challenges. Can New Mexico also handle trying to diversify its economy right now and um, move away from oil and gas dependence maybe? And, and if so, why should the state be thinking about doing that? Well, the state uh, depends for 35 or 40% of its total revenue on oil and gas. And that's, that's just a terrible kind of situation to be in because oil and gas prices bounce around a lot and they have. Uh, the legislature and other and executive branch people in Santa Fe have known this was a problem for about four decades and have not done much about it. Um, diversifying the economy is something that uh, has off and on been a strategy in New Mexico for a long, long time. It hasn't occurred to the extent that uh, a lot of people would like. Uh, it's a, we're not going to diversify in the short run. We need to get off of oil and gas revenue and we need to do that now. And the way to do that is changing the tax system. I feel like whenever these conversations start happening about whether it's regulation on the oil and gas industry or you know, this, these uh, federal pauses, the, there's a lot of talk about um, the obstacles for the oil and gas industry or the obstacles for the state in diversifying the economy. I'm curious, though, if you see opportunities in all of this happening. The opportunities would be to work uh, closely with the Biden administration to uh, guide future regulations on this. Um, there, you know, the, the Delaware Basin, that portion of the Permian that's in New Mexico, uh, is the hottest shale play in the world. And the oil companies are not going to abandon that. It's a very complicated process. Um, we've got state land, private land, and federal land all mixed up together. Some people call it a checkerboard. I'd call it a plate of spaghetti. It's a, it's a real mess. And so the, uh, I'm, the oil companies do face significant problems in getting permits, uh, not just to drill, but for pipelines and the like. Uh, New Mexico has done pretty well uh, on this. Uh, uh, New Mexico oil production has just skyrocketed over the last 10 or 12 years. Uh, in, in 2008, New Mexico produced 62 million barrels of oil, uh, about half of its previous peak. Last year, uh, well, in 2019, we produced uh, 330 million barrels. The final figures for 2020 are not in yet, but we will have exceeded that a little bit in 2020. Uh, the question is, you know, for opportunities, there's still lots of oil in the ground there. Um, and even from an environmental perspective, you can't you can't shift from fossil fuels to wind and solar instantly. Uh, 
a lot of that oil is going to come out of the ground. And so there's still plenty of opportunity in New Mexico for that. The state land office is doing their best on state lands to try to diversify the mix of revenues. They're putting, they're uh, signing leases on wind and solar and the like. Uh, but it's a, it's a hard kind of thing. So 20 or 30 or 50 years out, given climate change, um, changes in you know, sort of consumer habits, all of these different things, will the oil and gas industry still be um, a robust industry, a, an industry that, that, that will boost the state's economy? My best guess is that a generation from now, uh, it'll be a much smaller portion of the New Mexico economy. It'll be a much smaller portion of the energy mix. Uh, the electric vehicle is coming. It's Some people would say it's here. I think it's going to be five or 10 years before there are enough EVs on the road uh, to make a dent in gasoline demand. And certainly for a long time, we're going to uh, have uh, a demand for jet fuel. It's just hard to make a solar powered airplane. And I know people are experimenting, especially in Europe, Airbus is experimenting with possibly hydrogen cells for airplanes and a lot of things could happen, but uh, oil is gonna be around for a while. Uh, my guess is that uh, either now or fairly soon, we will. We really will have reached the peak demand for oil. All right. Well, Jim Peach, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. You're quite welcome anytime, Laura. We want to head back now to the line panel, another topic that we've been talking about a ton here on the show, and that is the state of the Rio Grande. We know that it dried up. In fairly long stretches this summer, we projections show are going to be in a La Nina year this year, which is not good. And some projections indicate Rio Grande may dry up from Bernalillo all the way through Albuquerque this coming summer unless we get a massive monsoon season. A lot of implications of this. One thing we know is the Interstate Stream Commission came out and asked farmers along the middle Rio Grande to, uh, if they don't need to, to not actually plant crops this year to try to help with that. This is going to be something we're going to be dealing with in a more urgent matter uh, again and again and again in the coming years. And so the line opinion panel's got some great thoughts here, and then I'll be back for some final thoughts. This is a La Nina year, in recent storms notwithstanding. That's usually not a good situation for New Mexico. Snowpack is likely to be down, meaning less water flowing this spring into reservoirs and fields. That's on top of an average snow season last year, when the Rio Grande dried for long stretches during the summer and even into the fall. Our Laura Pascas has been covering it, as you know, along with other journalists around the state. Already, Laura's reporting that Irrigators below Elephant Butte are bracing for a, quote, zero allotment year. And with that report in front of the Interstate Stream Commission, state water officials are recommending that farmers not plant crops this year unless they absolutely have to. You may think that's not possible, but yes, you heard that right. And Tom, even a couple years ago, we had a healthy snowpack. The river dried. 
And it seems things are changing quickly. Are we prepared? Well, uh, you know, you were talking a little bit about the farmers in the southern part of the state, mm -hmm. uh, specifically south of Elephant Butte. And, uh, you know, there are those farmers who rely on, you know, surface water and then those who have access to well water. And so those who have access to well water obviously will fare better. But, you know, really, it's 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 going to be coming like mm -hmm. a tiered approach. Like, where are those priorities as far as is it going to be agriculture? Is it right. going to be economic development uh, or somewhere in between? And I've noticed that uh, uh, state engineer uh, John D'Antonio has not been very vocal lately, uh, mm -hmm. but it's not his style, I should say, mm -hmm. um, to really kind of start you know, speaking on what he views as the priorities in these specific areas. And I think that there will come a time, whether it's the governor, the state engineer, or the legislature, where you're gonna need to be able to start picking or identifying anyway, winners and losers in the in the water battle. Right. Uh, and so, and that can be done by identifying where those priorities are. So if we pick up on that, that's a big deal. I mean, you, you could see it coming where folks say, look, you can plant, you can't, I mean, I'm talking about the middle Rio Grande corridor, not statewide now, we're talking right yes, by the river. that's right. And I think, and I just wanna mm -hmm. pick up on one thing. I think it's important to note, Gene, to your, your, your statement, and it's, it's true, Farmers are now being told if you can't if you can get away with not planting, don't plant. Let mm -hmm. your fields lie fallow. Um, and we tend to think of, I think of, of farms as somewhat monolithic, but there are a number of farms in New Mexico that are not sort of day in day out. This is how the farmers and their workers support themselves. There are some farms where it's more of an option, let's say, to let the fields lie fallow. And I think that that message is especially important to that group, which to Tom's point is probably less likely to have access to well water. But um, but we, you know, we're looking at what are our more, once again, what are our more water intensive crops? What are our less water intensive right. crops? We know, we've known for a long time that alfalfa, for instance, is just uh, so water intensive, sort of terrifying to think of giant alfalfa fields running in, in a year like this. Um, the state is, I mean, it just, you know, water is a public resource as much as we tend to talk about water rights in particular, you know, particular, uh, the legal structure sure. that gives particular mm -hmm. farmers um, access, particular communities access. We have known for a long time that, um, that this time was coming. And I think that unfortunately, as a community, we have not fully addressed what is necessary in order to get through this. Mm -hmm. Ed Perea, interestingly, when I look at the activity in the Roundhouse, we've got all kinds of bills on solar energy, prescribed fire, statewide greenhouse, greenhouse gas reductions, all kinds of bills. But during the Martinez administration, there was almost no bills uh, dropped because they knew if it got to her desk, it was going nowhere. Have we put ourselves behind the eight ball here in a significant way because we haven't? kept up with this over the past decade? You know, I think we have. Uh, you know, I think there are today thinkers and there are tomorrow thinkers. Good and point. I think previous administration were today thinkers. Uh, and, and right now we're trying to look at tomorrow and, and we've missed a few years. Uh, I think this is a crisis that you follow and you you believe the science. There's some you know, very clear empirical data that suggests that we, we have a problem on our hands and, and it's not gonna get better without uh, some, some aggressive steps. And so we are a few, steps behind, again, depending on, on where you stand on this. Some people will, will look at the real grand with a couple of inches of water and they'll think that, that that's fine. And, uh, but if you're if you're a farmer, as was mentioned, um, and we, we have to rethink how we're using our water. Water is, 
is a commodity and we need to really start to treat it that way. Mm-hmm. I think maybe some have taken it for granted. You turn on the faucet, hey, it opens up, you get your glass of water. You don't think much more about it, but it's the bigger picture that we need to we need to really think about. Yeah. Hey, Tommy, have you been down to the Farm and Ranch Museum? Uh, I think uh, recently, yeah. There's Las Cruces. A, last time I was there, Cruces, last time I was there, there was an interesting display about how Native Americans use tiny bits of water to you know, grow lots and lots and lots of crops. It was a really interesting display. And I gotta wonder if we're facing a situation where we, this is an innovation moment, meaning we can really take a hard look about how we use water, how we irrigate, and really get it down to the gram of water you know, and how we're using it. Is this, is this what we're looking at here? Is this a possibility? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I, uh, you know, I don't think that uh, you can say that one size fits all. You have to look at all specific options when you're looking at a situation as critical as water. Right. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting picking up on what Sophie was saying about alfalfa is that, you know, up in Santa Fe right now, uh, one of the bills that most likely will get passed this session has to do with legalizing marijuana, cannabis. Yep. And cannabis and alfalfa actually have the same amount of water use. In yeah. fact, they're on that same type of crop rotation. Uh, so it should be interesting to see that if all of a sudden cannabis is legalized in, point there. in Mexico, yeah. the water use, what yeah. is that going to do? That came so. up during, when, the, when the hemp was rising, that came up. Everybody said, well, what about the water? And everybody kind of turned their heads. <laughs> We're out of yeah. time this week. Thanks always to our panelists. I'm back in a moment with a few final thoughts. All right, another jam-packed show this week. We appreciate you tuning in, as always, and love to hear what you're thinking about, what you're seeing out there in your circle. You can always reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, any of those places. Let us know what you're seeing, what you're hearing, uh, what you liked in the show, what you didn't like, what you'd like us to talk about in future weeks. We always love that feedback. And as usual, we'll leave you with some final thoughts this week from host Gene Grant. But not to worry, got lots in store for you next week on the show. We're going to be talking about redistricting, uh, which comes out of every 10 years census report. And that'll be part of the conversation in the legislature as we uh, zone in on the second half of a crazy 60-day session. A whole lot more coming up as well, but we'll be hard at work. Be back with you again next weekend. Until then... Stay safe, stay healthy, have a terrific weekend. A lot of us have been out and about recently since it's been so unseasonably warm. The heat hasn't been on for a number of days at Casa de Grant. It's barely into February. Count me in with those concerned with what we are seeing with our own eyes right now. It's too warm, it's that simple. Now, when New Mexico officials advise our farmers not to bother planting, as was the double-take headline you heard earlier this week, then I would say we have a problem. Climate change is no longer an abstract threat for New Mexico. That's why I was interested in the other headline this week that caught my eye, that General Motors plans to have its entire fleet of vehicles running on electric power by 2035. It's aggressive without question. Remains to be seen if the other auto manufacturers follow suit, certainly, but it is a significant step. We are in a vulnerable position here in this state because of this area is ground zero for drought. And I've already seen too many stories about so-called climate refugees leaving the area in anticipation of what's coming. A presidential plan is all well and good. We all have to do our part individually as well.